card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of the sport. Rick Peterson, the director of pitching development for the Baltimore Orioles. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which airs live on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM 111. I am Adi Weiner, co-host, collaborator, and a professor of statistics at the Wharton School of Business, and I'm here this day to break down the week's top takeaways. Our guests this week were Ed Fang, founder of The Power Rank and a contributor to many outlets, including The Bleacher Report, and Scott Rosner, who is a practiced associate professor in the Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department at the Wharton School. And he is also the host of the Wharton Sports Business Show, which airs on Sirius XM Tuesdays at 4 p.m. And now our first clip. So we we think that Washington's the least likely of the of the big teams to make it all the way through. I mean Michigan actually because right. they've got to go through Columbus, but Washington's got a hell of a path to go through. They got Washington State yep. and then some some Pac-12 South winner, which might be USC again. In fact, we think odds are it will be. What do you think of Washington? Yeah. And what how did your opinion update on Washington after watching that game last weekend? Yeah, so I thought. Yeah, so I think Washington. Uh, I mean, I've been completely wrong about that team. I called them one of the most overrated teams in the preseason. You had a team that really hadn't won, hadn't beaten anyone in the last four years. Yeah. Um, you know, there were a team that was outside the top 25 of my rankings last year, and all of a sudden we're making them, you know, a top five team, top ten team in the preseason. Yeah. Well, I was completely wrong about that. Um, the offense has been, uh, you know, we knew the defense was going to be good. Yep. The offense, and they have been, the offense has been just straight spectacular. Yep. And this is one of those teams where you always, you always kind of wonder, when and if they're going to regress to their mean, their true skill level. So this is a team that struggles to recruit at a top 25 level. Yep. And and this was the point that I made last week before the USC game. You know, Washington was clearly the better football team heading into that game, and the performance on the field showed that. But then you're going into a team, USC, that, you know, I mean, on a bad year, their, their recruiting rankings are 10th. Right. There's definitely a talent yeah. gap there, and when yep. does that come into play? And, you know, I mean, I mean the talent gap was clear as day on the field Saturday night. Um, so this, I mean, I still think this Washington team is really good. Uh, I think they're going to have issues at Wazoo yeah. uh, next week in the Apple Cup. And, you know, I Colorado's probably going to win the South. And, um, I think I have about 54% to win the South. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Um, they've, got a, they've got a tough road, right? They, I think they have to go to Wazoo as well, if I'm if I'm Right, but they also need to lose twice because they, they have the head-to-head over USC. Okay, no, but, what, but a three-way. I no, think no, no, in a no, three-way, is that right? Because Utah, these guys have all traded losses. Yes, that's right. Utah has a head-to-head over Colorado. And UC, USC has it over Colorado, but not Utah. Utah has it over USC. Well, that was Cade Massey, our host, and Ed Feng, kind of trying to break down the possibilities for the college football championships. And what I think is really great about Ed is he's discussing Washington University's performances, and he's admitting that he really got it wrong, that the data that he came in preseason was 
predicted that Washington would nothing be nothing like what they ended up producing this season. They're one of the best teams. They still have a chance to make it to the playoffs. Um, and Ed has admitted twice that he just got it wrong. But on the other hand, he's still sticking with his kind of basic prior beliefs about the two teams. USC, he admits, um, didn't isn't as good as Washington, at least based on this year's performance. But USC typically has much better recruiting classes and that he could see on the field that they might have um, more talent. And it's interesting to see that interplay in uh, in the forecasts. Let's go to our next clip. Ed, can we flip up to the NFL? What's your take on yeah, on on what's going on in the NFL this year? We've seen we've seen a lot of parity, and one of the only teams we really felt was head and shoulders above everybody else got beat last week. So, coming yeah. out of the that great game and a great weekend of games in the NFL, what, what's your take on the on that league? Yeah, I mean, I I still I mean I still have uh, New England at the top. You know, Tom Brady had a zero percent interception rate. That was obviously right. unsustainable. Right. We saw that that was the case. And, you know, you can't doubt the, the Seattle team. Um, I mean, they clearly know how to play. And yeah. I'm also really intrigued by this, this idea of, you know, in the NFL, like you don't want to play your best football in September. I know. Right. I think we've seen that a little bit from Seattle. Um, I think uh, Andy Reid teams have kind of done that in the past, too. So, you know, those are, those are kind of two teams I'm, I'm – you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to predict because you just don't know how they're going to play. Mm-hmm. Um, Who else? On, what do you think about the quarterback in Dallas? Yeah, so my numbers love Dallas. I think you guys do too, right? Yeah, we, we had them four um, last week. They're going to be even higher this week. Yeah, I think I had them at two last week. And, you know, Dak did amazing. And we're starting to get to the regime from, like, Okay, this is a small sample size boot for a rookie quarterback. That <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the, that's the question that really intrigues me. What what do you at what point do you decide you have enough data to say he's the quarterback? Uh, he's playing as yeah. good as as Tony Romo know. has ever played, at least numerically. I don't know. I I, re- I, I, I have no idea the answer to answer that. Well, here's I, mean, I think as we get to ten, eleven games, you start to say, hey, this guy's real. Well, here's and if we get to this. If, and then if we win the Super Bowl, then 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 we have to start predicting regression from last year because. Otherwise, this guy's going to be the greatest quarterback that ever played this game, right? Really interesting discussion. Uh, Cade and Ed and, and and I were talking about NFL power, parody in the beginning and, and then transitioned into Dak Prescott. And the real question is, what do you make of this guy after two-thirds of a season is over? Not even, not even two-thirds. Here is a, a, a quarterback drafted deep in the draft, maybe sixth or seventh round, probably not even the seventh best quarterback in terms of draft, yet he seems to be having the best year, as good a year numerically, as I pointed out, than Tony Romo. And what do you make of this of this performance? Is it really overperformance, or are we going to expect regression to the mean? Um, is this the real deal? Have we seen enough data to be certain about it? Um, and the parody in the NFL plays out in the sense that we're we have essentially not that big a difference between top to bottom. Obviously, you have to exclude the upper top and the absolute bottom. But between those teams, maybe Dallas is number two, all the way down to maybe San Francisco or or um, or Chicago is number two from the bottom. There just isn't that much spread. Really, any team can beat any other team on any given day. So let's go to our third clip. And here is Scott talking about soccer. Historically, College soccer, and I'm a soccer player, and I've yes, played the I game know. my whole life. Yeah. College soccer is kind of like the death knell for U.S. players historically. Um, the U.S. is fairly competitive and historically has been fairly competitive until the kids get to college age. And in college, you know, where American uh, university students are focusing on their education and playing ball, 
kids overseas and the rest of the world just have a job starting at age their job, 16. Their, their job, their, is, to play their job is to play soccer. And their they're paid, and they 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 get a bonus. They're compensated. They oh yeah, they're yeah. they're professional in every sense. So of just the word. put it in context. He got he's seventeen years old. What's the name of the Christian Pulisic? Christian Pulisic. What was he offered to to play for? It's Germany? a good question. He probably a, played for developmental. Did he jump oh, right no, in? Or? Yeah, no, he came through academy programs yeah. and development programs. Um, you know, I don't know what his salary is. Um, you know, for someone of his ilk, it's clear it's obviously six figures. I mean, he's, sure. You know, right. I mean, there's there's no he's not in a he's not a seven figure player yet. Um, but he's getting great experience playing for a really high-level club uh, in, in Borussia Dortmund mm-hmm. um, in, in Germany, and he's getting he's getting in Champions League, so the Continental Wide Championship. He is playing. He's, he's getting minutes. Top player. He's getting. He's playing against the best players in the world at the highest level of competition that you can see at age seventeen. Well, actually, I just uh, I just heard from Matt that he's now eighteen. He's but, eighteen. Uh, what? Uh, when does a soccer player peak? Is it 21? What's what's the age curve? One of the things we talk on Moneyball is all the time is age curve analytics and trying to make a forecast. And, and maybe we'll get around to this soon. But the analogy here we have with Dallas Cowboys, they have their Dak Prescott, who's who's a rookie, and you have Tony Romo, who's who's 36. They're coming head to head when when Romo comes back. Romo's already announced he's not going to he doesn't. The job belongs to Dak. Um, I'm not sure uh, because of the, because of age curves. Yeah. Uh, the rookies are way, way low on their age curve. And. And I don't know what to do with a 36-year-old, but what's it in soccer? Yeah, so it, it tends to be younger because of the amount of wear and tear that goes on on, on the legs uh, during a match. And because, listen, you're playing for your club, and if you play for a strong club, you're not only playing a domestic schedule, but you're playing um, a, a tournament schedule domestically. You are playing, uh, you know, you're playing in, in Champions League or the Continental Wide Championship that your team plays on. So it's a lot of matches in a year. There's and a so lot of young stars have a tremendous advantage. Yeah, but, but not but like... But they're, they're inexperienced, they're, right? they're experience right so what we do see especially with strikers in particular uh where speed is you know you have to rely on your speed to beat the other defenders is it tends to be the er, the age curve tends to uh be accelerated a bit so and when is so, the peak well i don't know the, the peak age I, I don't recall but but by your late 20s you're um, done you're done especially if you rely on speed um now if you're more of a target player who can distribute the ball you can you can have some additional time but for field players uh, and particularly strikers it, it, it this the speed catches up the lack of speed catches up to you more quickly defenders can last a little bit longer um because they're not as dependent on speed goalkeepers can play i mean timmy howard's the u.s goalie he's 30 what 36 they or can so, last a long time and they can last a lot longer so that was an interesting discussion about soccer. Um, we basically divided up into two pieces. One was about the age curve, and soccer is an interesting age curve because of the the brutality of the game on your on the players physically. Uh, but the first part was also uh, interesting. I thought we talked about Christian Pulisic and his uh, ability to be able to play in a, the Champions League and and uh, top competition in, in Europe. That's something that American soccer players simply just don't get. Um, is really top competition, and one of the one of the observations that that I recall talking to Rick Peterson about baseball is that so much of professional baseball, and I really mean in the minor leagues, so many of the players are there to be top competition for the one that has for the for the fraction of players, a small fraction of players who actually have a chance, and um, we don't we don't have that for soccer in America. You really can't get the kind of competition that you require if you're going to be world class uh, soccer. By playing in the United States, and we are so far away from getting to that point, and I don't think we're going to see American too many American uh, teams competing uh, internationally, and I think that's already playing out. We're having World Cup qualifications, and the United States is practically eliminated. Let's go to our next clip, which is MLB discussion and MVP. 
major leagues are about to announce their MVP selections. Mm. And the thing that makes Mike Trout the perennial MVP that he is undoubtedly going to be this year is his ability to produce essentially David Ortiz-like numbers at at the plate, mm-hmm. but do it from center field, yeah. which means that you just have so much flex. You add, you add so much flexibility and value to your team, and so if you, it's interesting because we think about this. Well, on paper, offensively, Mike Trout and David Ortiz had essentially the same output. Uh, Ortiz had more, certainly had more OPS. Um, uh, maybe uh, Mike Trout had more base stealing. He, he stole ba- some bases, but there's no. No question that what that Mike Trout did that on the field, and that's worth a tremendous amount. Also, being doing it at a tough position where there, there is a scarcity of talent. I wanted to uh, to ask and, you, but, do you, but yeah. do you worry about? I mean, how much do you worry about the you know the ancillary effects I and mean, the things you think about? The team didn't win; they had a terrible season. You know, those are things that the, 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 that those matter, I guess. And 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 David, I mean, it, it's like the old like, hey, we could we could have finished last without you. right without you. Right. We could have done that. I don't think that's going to cost Mike. I mean, the real question is, he going to beat out Mookie Betts? I mean, interestingly right. enough, David Ortiz is not even in the running. If you look at the WAR, which is a statistics yeah. that we've talked about a lot on this show, wins above replacement. David Ortiz averaged about four and a half. Yeah, that's Trout what, was like ten and a half. He was like ten and a half. So essentially, and yes. it's a crazy thing because what you're essentially saying is that a team with Mike Trout brings ten and a half more wins than a team without Mike Trout and you just kinda of go to the boards and pick up whoever right. you can. Your quadruple A kind and, of player. And yet someone and the same thing same transaction or swap with David Ortiz only brings you four and a half. And it just seems like it's too big a gap. And 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 I have some students and I were working on this to try to figure out really if that really truly does make sense or whether there's something built in this cake here that is advantaging the the Mike Trout sort of t- potentially too much. So I confess that I spoke a little bit uh, out of line um, when I said earlier that Mike Trout was the sure thing MVP for two reasons. First of all, all the pundits said he wasn't going to win. And the reason for that is he has been the war winner in each of the last five seasons, but he's won the MVP only once. And the sense is that among baseball writers, they don't appreciate the sabermetrics, which indicate that war is the right statistics to use, and that they are far more um, likely to appreciate typical or traditional statistics like home runs, RBIs, um, on-base percentage, slugging percentage. And finally, the baseball writers are reluctant to give the MVP to a team that isn't even in the running for a championship. And the, and the uh, Angels were a sub-500 team. I was speaking out of line in the sense that um, I thought he was a sure thing. It turns out he was the MVP. So at this point, uh, um, it turned out Mike Trout is is indeed the MVP for this past season. Um, But it was somewhat surprising to the sabermetricians, not a done deal. I was almost assuming that everybody thinks like a sabermetrician, and they don't. Most people still have not um, gotten used to the idea that a baseball player's most valuableness can be actually measured and that Mike Trout is the clear and obvious determining uh, win. Um, whether or not a war is st- calculated properly is still something that I think is to be talked about and discussed, but we'll save that for some other show. In our next clip, we'll be talking about college football again. On the other so hand, give me the big five. I didn't even I didn't did not hear the results. Well, you know, I barely did. Let me see if I can pull it up for you. I know Alabama still won. Oh, really? Yeah. Now there's a shock. Now they won by what? Forty five points. Yeah, Alabama's. At least there's one source of that's not controversial. Then it's Ohio State, Michigan, and Clemson. And uh, the interesting bits there are that Michigan didn't move despite losing to whatever, a two-plus touchdown underdog Iowa. They didn't change. 
Um, and then the, the thing is, the, the committee loves the, loves the Big Ten. So Wisconsin is seven, Penn State's eight, and uh, it's just it's not stacking up well for you know what. Here, here's the thing: we don't. This doesn't matter right now because there are still important games to play. So you can kind of ignore the process if you don't want to look at this, how the sausage is made because these guys have proven that they'll flip things around last minute. It's and, and games are going to you know dictate to some extent what they do. So they're announcing this just to keep us interested. Yeah, and they're doing it's very successful. <laughs> they're very successful at getting the attention and the controversy and people writing about it and probably people are watching these friggin' Tuesday night shows now. So whatever. What what's true is that the di- landscape shifted some last week and 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 now the the world goes through the Big Ten. Like the Big Ten really is going to drive the show. And there's this crazy wrinkle in there because Michigan lost. If Ohio State is able to beat Michigan in the last game of the year, so Michigan has to go to Columbus. So you think it'll be the winner of that game will go? No, this is the thing. This is the thing. Ohio State lost to Penn State a couple of weeks ago in their only loss and a big upset. It is setting up for a three-way tie if Ohio State beats Michigan. They'll be at home. Right now they'll be favored, and Michigan's got some quarterback health issues. So it's they'll be favored to win that game, which means they'll be favored to drive the Big Ten East into a three-way tie. Who has the winner? Who is the tie break on that on that three-way? Penn State. So that was Cade breaking down the college football playoff possibilities. And it seems that it comes down to our local favorite, Penn State, and we'll see what they're up to. I don't think they have a shot to making it, but they are the spoiler in all this. Our last clip is a discussion about New England and its loss to Seattle. So New England just lost. Yeah. Um, they are, they've, they've lost twice this season. They look, I, I would say, perfectly beatable by a good team. Perfectly beatable. Come on. I they mean, look phenomenal. Well, they just lost. And yeah, they right. lost to Seattle, the second best team in the, in the in the country. So, but do you think, I mean, Alabama looks like it's just walking all over everyone. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're playing high schoolers. Okay. Head to head. So I, yeah, they are more, dom- Alabama's more dominant than is New England. I, that's intuitively my reaction. Okay. We could go through the points, but that's intuitively my reaction. I mean, we can look at the, I mean, our power rankings, we have Alabama first and they are six and a half points better. The number two, and which uh, is Louisville, Louisville in our power ranking. Your power ranking, okay. And by the time you know, by the time you go even down to how long do you have to go to get two touchdown favorite? Number seven, you know, one versus seven, and they're a two touchdown favorite over Washington. So we could. I don't have the NFL numbers at my hand. We're just now updating them, but um, that's probably comparable, frankly, to New England. Um, if you went one to seven, New England's been quite a bit above everybody. They're going to come down after this week, but Seattle's a very decent team to lose to. Okay, well, Cade kind of tried to smack me down there a little bit when I suggested that New England was perfectly beatable. Let me see if I can defend myself slightly. Essentially, what I'm saying is that New England is just not that much better than the top seven teams, so that their probability of winning is even close to 100%. It's not even close to 90%. It's probably close, much closer to 60% to 65% when they play a top team. And that's what I mean by perfectly beatable. If their odds of winning is not much greater than 60-65%, that leaves still 30-35% probability of their losing. And that seems not so unlikely. It's not like Alabama playing anybody else where they have uh, 90 to 95% probability of beating them. And that was the contrast. If you want to hear the full show, it will be available for download on SoundCloud cloud and on the apple store under podcasts 
Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. Until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics. 